This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this day in history, Alexander Hamilton was born. And for the hour, we're going to spend some time with and talking about this remarkable historic figure. And you're going to hear from Ron Chernow, who wrote what is certainly the definitive biography of Alexander Hamilton, and the book that inspired, as you'll come to learn, the play on Broadway that is just sweeping actually the nation. You cannot get a ticket. Try as you may. I had some friends fly up around Christmas time, and I had urged them to see the play, and he ended up having to pay $400 a seat in order to see it. And he did, and he told me he was glad he did. Um, and now I'm helping him pay off the balance to a loan shark. It, it's it's worth the price of admission, folks. Get the play. And it's not, this is the kind of play, I saw it way back when it was being workshopped at the public theater. And it's the kind of play that is not contingent on a star. In fact, it is the kind of play that will make stars. And it is an unlikely cast, it's unlikely music, and it's stunning. And it tells you that the Founding Father's vision is alive and well. And that it touched a young writer of the caliber of the playwright of Hamilton all those years later. And that that book did is a remarkable story. And Hamilton's was a remarkable story indeed. He was an immigrant to the United States, one of the seven foreign-born signers of the Constitution, something we don't often hear about. He was aide to camp to then General George Washington, the nation's first Treasury Secretary, the founder of the Federalist Party, our nation's financial system, the United States Coast Guard, and the New York Post. Not bad for one life. Hamilton was a prolific author, including 51 of the 85 essays that formed the Federalist Papers. And he was one of only three non-presidents to have his face on American currency. Sacagawea on the $1 coin, Hamilton on the $10 bill, and Ben Franklin on the 100 In 2004, author Ron Chernow published the definitive biography of his life titled Alexander Hamilton. And on this day that Hamilton was born, we take you to select portions of a talk Chernow gave about his book to the New York Historical Society. Chernow started things out, like all good stories, at the beginning of Alexander Hamilton's life. He was an illegitimate boy born on the British island of Nevis, and as Dick Gilder indicated, he had suffered through a series of childhood traumas that would have shattered a lesser figure. Again, to reiterate, his father abandons the family when Alexander is 11, mother dies of tropical fever when he's 13, he's then farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide years later. Calamities of biblical proportions seem to find their way to this young man. I had a friend of mine once describe how Alexander Hamilton's childhood. Thus, he had more sad stories than the Old Testament. And he did. And as Chernow described, my goodness. Father abandons family at 11. Mother dies of tropical fever at 13. Farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide. You can't make this stuff up. It's so bad. Despite the traumas. He's a precocious young man. In 1772, in other words, about a year before the Boston Tea Party, 
a monster hurricane lashes St. Croix, and this self-taught prodigy sits down and he pens a description of the hurricane of such precocious force and eloquence that the local merchants, recognizing this wonder in their midst, band together to finance his education in North America. The wunderkind studied at King's College in Lower Manhattan, later renamed Columbia, King's being a slightly awkward and inconvenient name after the revolution. And already as undergraduate extraordinaire, Hamilton is publishing stirring pamphlets against the British. He takes up a musket and he drills with his fellow students in nearby St. Paul's churchyard, today adjacent to Ground Zero. And he delivers spellbinding speeches to large crowds on what is today New York City Hall Park. So you're getting to know just a little bit about the nature and character of this young man and overcoming obstacles, overcoming status, overcoming regional differences. This young man thrives in what is Upper Manhattan. Hamilton's Strange Studies, take a listen. Hamilton also totes along six volumes of Plutarch's Lives, and he takes the empty pages of a military paybook, and we see him recording notes on foreign exchange, population growth, geography, even European rivers that he will never set eyes on. In fact, in his notes, very interesting notes called from Plutarch, we see a young man who seems absolutely bewitched by the bizarre sexual practices of ancient Rome. For instance, Hamilton noted that in ancient Rome, young married women seemed to enjoy being whipped by lusty young noblemen. Why? Because they thought that it aided conception. I can tell you, when you study our founding fathers, you are led down all sorts of unexpected byways. (laughs) So true. And what's so wonderful about Chernoff's storytelling is that he humanizes the human. And anyone who gets through American history courses and finds them boring, it's not the history that's boring, folks. It's your teacher. It's your teacher. And regrettably, too many history teachers kill this otherwise unbelievable material. Plutarch. I mean, he's studying Plutarch. He's studying foreign exchanges. Who studies both of those things, let alone one? A kid who finds himself at Columbia University. Pretty unbelievable. And by the way, this day in history is brought to you by our sponsors and our partners at Hillsdale College. Where, my goodness, you can actually learn stuff. Like Plutarch. Maybe not foreign currencies, but certainly Hamilton. You'll learn about the Federalist Papers. My goodness, you'll read them. You'll actually enjoy them. When we come back, more on the life of Alexander Hamilton, born on this day in history in 1755. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever. 
That's following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. They're now in Pierre, South Dakota, and here's our own Alex Cortez with our 11th feature on what happened on exactly these days in history over 200 years ago. The Corps of Discovery are in the heart of Sioux Nation. They're coming off of a friendly gathering with the Yankton Sioux, and they're about to encounter the Teton Sioux, also known as the Brulee. Those people did not consider themselves the great Sioux Nation. They considered themselves their clan, or maybe their band. And so it's always a mistake to talk about the Sioux or the Crow or the Clatsop as if they were France and Germany and Italy. It it never works that way. We're listening to Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical. We proceeded on. And essentially the, the tribes that had had more contact with whites were friendlier because they knew that whatever else is true, the white people had things that they wanted. And that getting those things, gunpowder, muskets, knives, depended upon some sort of a harmonious relationship. And so the Yankton were friendlier. They may have just been friendlier because they were friendlier, but they were also closer to the trade network. Closer than the Tetonsu, who were not as friendly. And besides this trade factor, the Teton also were not their happiest selves at the moment. The Teton Sioux were in a very, very aggressive mood. They had been driven out of Minnesota and Wisconsin by the Ojibwe because the Ojibwe got guns first. And they had migrated from a lake lifeway into this nomadic horse-based plains lifeway. And they were really good at it. They used their aggressions to drive as many other peoples away from the great buffalo herds. And they were not in a good mood about anybody threatening their hegemony. Including these white boys who showed up in their backyard. Here's the author of The Essential Lewis and Clark, Landon Jones. Right before Lewis and Clark ran into them, the... Teton Sioux had had a battle with the Omahas and killed a great number of them, maybe something like 70. And that was days before they had seen Lewis and Clark. So they were battle-hardened. The Corps of Discovery is half this number and wouldn't be so hard to take out. But there was no way of getting around these Teton Sioux. They have to pass through them to get upriver, and they have to try for peace. And so they enter and they begin with their standard council meeting. After smoking, agreeable to the usual custom, Captain Lewis proceeded to deliver a speech, which we obliged to curtail for want of a good interpreter. The thing I find puzzling about this story is that they had had an interpreter that they had picked up along the way named Pierre Dorian. Dorian had spent 20 years or so amongst Suyan-speaking peoples. He helped them in their negotiation with the Yankton Sioux, but now when they really needed him, he wasn't around. And so once Lewis starts to give his speech, 
Clark says in his journal, Lewis had to curtail the speech because of a lack of a good interpreter. So as a historian, I can only puzzle about why they didn't find a way to keep Pierre Dorian with them because it was critical. Jefferson had said in his instructions that he particularly wanted Lewis and Clark to conciliate the Sioux. Jefferson knew somehow that the Sioux were an extremely powerful tribe on the upper Missouri and that it was important for the United States to have peaceful and harmonious relations with them. And so he had gone out of his way to name this tribe. And yet when they get there, they don't have an adequate interpreter and they can't even get out the speech. And with no speech, how are they to communicate peace? To communicate that they weren't a trade expedition who could give them a bunch of awesome stuff that they'd want. But they were rather a scientific expedition, whatever that means. A foreign enough concept to the Indians as it was, with or without a good interpreter. So they had to get the Teton to like them without the use of language, somehow. So Clark gave them the usual medals, but he knew it wouldn't be enough. So he decided to show them the coolest thing that they had. We invited those chiefs and a soldier on board our boat and showed them many curiosities, which they were much surprised. We gave them half a wine glass of whiskey, which they appeared to be exceedingly fond of. Mmm, good. And after this exploration of pleasantries and curiosities, on their massive boat, the keelboat, Clark sought to bring them back to shore on the course smaller boat, their water taxi of sorts, the Red Pirogue. Sought to. They get to shore, and a group of the elite dog soldiers, the sort of paramilitary group, or we call them maybe Navy SEALs, but the best of the elite soldiers of the tribe grab hold of the rope and clutch the mast of the pirogue. As soon as I landed, three of their young men seized the cable of the pirogue. One soldier hugged the mast, and the second chief was exceedingly insolent, both in words and gestures, to me, declaring I should no go off, saying he had not received presents sufficient from us. This is the only time in the whole course of the expedition that Clark admits that he gets angry. I felt myself warm. I'm sure he did get angry at other points during the journey, but this is the only time that he reports it. He said that there was a rascally second chief uh, that he called the partisan. The partisan uh, pretended to be drunk. They'd given a small amount of whiskey. Sucked the bottle after it was out. They took up an empty bottle, smelled it, and made many simple gestures, and soon began to be troublesome. He pretended that he was drunk. The second chief staggered up against us, affecting drunkness as a cloak for his villainous intentions, as I found afterwards. And Clark immediately determined that he was a bad guy, and when they got back to shore, this partisan was gesturing to Clark in some way that Clark regarded as a personal affront to his basic manhood or his honor. I attempted to pacify him, but it had a contrary effect for his insults became so personal and his intentions evident to do me injury. So we have to surmise that it was some sort of obscene gesture or clearly universal 
gesture of dismissiveness and contempt. And probably this partisan got into Clark's personal space in some way. But whatever it was, Clark flew into a rage. I drew my sword and made a signal to the boat to prepare for action. He says in his journal that he felt compelled to protect his honor and, and his life. Lewis is back on the keelboat, and they're in a state of high alert anyway. At this motion, Captain Lewis ordered all in the boat under arms. And we learned from Patrick Gass, one of the other journal keepers, that they had three cannons. And they have a, some sort of a torch that can light the fuse of these things whenever Lewis gives the order. A full determination to defend me, if possible. And Clark says there were soldiers of the Brule Sioux on shore with their bows and arrows out, and they began to pull their arrows out of their quivers. So you have this moment where the expedition has been rolling along for weeks now, all summer from mid-May until the last week in September. And suddenly, they're in this moment where it looks like there's going to be a bloodbath. And when we come back... You'll find out what happened on this, the 11th of our series, the most epic road trip ever. And this is the Lewis and Clark story. And we love bringing you these historical stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More on this remarkable story, the Lewis and Clark story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever. Let's return to Alex and the story. The Indian Party, about 100. I again offered my hand to the first chief, who refused it. All this time, most of the warriors appeared to have their bows strung and took out their arrows from their quivers. They're going to wind up firing on dozens if not hundreds of these Sioux warriors and the Sioux warriors who are extremely good at, the, at what they do and are probably going to wind up wounding or killing a fair number of expedition members. As I, being surrounded, was not permitted by them to return. The Clark can't possibly survive if this comes to bloodshed because he's on shore uh, with just a couple of men surrounded by angry Native Americans. So this is really, this is maybe the most tense moment of the entire expedition. 
says he raised his voice. Their treatment to me was very rough, and I think justified roughness on my part. I was reading the journals again, just imagining this. That, you know, there are universal signs of anger, of laughter, of joy, of ecstasy, of sadness, and so on. And Clark must have shouted in some unmistakable way and must have bristled with all of his testosterone, with his sword drawn, and probably pushed back a little bit. But this is sort of good cop, bad cop territory. The second leader of the brulee was this man they called the partisan, this rascal. But there was a more important leader by the name of Black Buffalo. And Black Buffalo now intervenes and begins to ratchet this tension down. And he takes the cable from these elite soldiers. They have to accept what the leader of the tribe wants them to do. And he hands it then back to Clark. I turned off and went with my men on board the pirogue. So this is their start. This is the first of the five or six days that they spend with the brulee, and it's, uh, it's really a difficult time. We proceeded on about a mile and anchored near a small island. I call this island Bad Humored Island, as we were in a bad humor. And Sergeant Ordway, in his journal, noted the ultimatum that Clark made in the fog of the chaos, and for some reason, decided not to recount in his own journal. Captain Clark told them that we were sent by their great father, the President of the United States, and that if they misused us, that he or Captain Lewis could, by writing to him, have them all destroyed as it were, in a moment. And the next morning, they encounter these Teton Sioux again and must have shuddered about the uncertainty of what would transpire. Captain Lewis and five men went on shore with the chiefs, who appeared to wish to become friendly. They made frequent solicitation for us to remain, one night only see them dance, and let them show their good disposition towards us. We determined to remain. We smoked until dark, at which time all was cleared away and a large fire made in the center. Several men with tambourines, highly decorated with deer and goat hoofs, to make them rattle, assembled, and began to sing and beat. The women came forward, highly decorated with the scalps and trophies of war, of their fathers, husbands, and relations and danced the war dance, which they done with great cheerfulness until twelve o'clock midnight, when we informed the chief we intended return on board. They offered us women, which we did not accept. Four chiefs accompanied us to the boat and stayed all night. They're trying to get as many people on those boats as they can, and, and they're there for a couple of reasons. Lewis and Clark probably regard them as hostages, you know, we're not going to be attacked as long as their leadership is on these boats. So they're probably quite happy to have the leaders on the boats. But from the Teton Sioux point of view, getting on those boats means you can look around a little. You can try to figure out what's in the hold. What are they storing? What, what, what sort of things are they carrying? Are they lying to us? 
are they really a trade expedition or if not what exactly are they carrying and so they're trying to get as many people on board to take a look around as possible and to embed the expedition with Sioux women for the same purposes and so it's fascinating this is really clever tense diplomacy over this week-long period boy these are rough brutal forms of diplomacy Makes today's look like a cakewalk, and the intensity would continue the next day when one of the core members screwed up. Two chief accompanied us to the boat. I, with two chiefs, was in a pirogue going on board. The man who steered, not being much accustomed to steer, passed the bow of the boat and pirogue, came broadside against the cable, and broke it which obliged me to order in a loud voice, All hands up and at their oars! All hands up and at their oars! My order to the men and the bustle of their getting to their oars alarmed the chief, together with the appearance of the men on shore as the boat turned. The chief hollered and alarmed the camp, informing them that the Mahars was attacking us. In about ten minutes, the bank was lined with men armed for action. About 200 men appeared and found it was false. After about half hour, all returned, but about 60 men who continued on the bank all night. This alarmed Captain Lewis and well as myself, viewed as the signal of their intentions. One half on guard. Our misfortune of losing our anchor obliged us to lay under a falling bank, much exposed to the accomplishment of the hostile intentions of those Tetons, who we had every reason to believe from their conduct, intended to make an attempt to stop our progress, and if possible, rob us. And when you think that it can't get any worse, it does. One of their men, Pierre Cruzat, who's their best waterman, and had been up and down the middle Missouri many times. He speaks a little Omaha. They call it Maha. And there are some Omaha prisoners with this Sioux tribe, and he learns from them. Cruzat came in the night and informed me that the Tetons intended to stop us. The Sioux are planning to cut off the expedition, to kill everybody or to turn it back, but they are not going to allow the expedition to go any further upriver. We show as little signs of a knowledge of their intentions as possible, all prepared on board for anything which might happen. We kept a strong guard all night in the boat. No sleep. It would have been nice to have a good interpreter who could communicate peace and diffuse all of this, but also to listen and see if Cruzat was right. I always think about when Lewis and Clark are amongst some tribe, they hear the native peoples buzzing, talking in small clusters. Some of them may be talking in very passionate ways, whispering, and they have no idea what's being said. And that automatically makes somebody paranoid whenever this happens to anyone, anywhere on Earth, even now. Well, imagine what it must have been then when they don't know if they're saying, We'll wait till after dark and we'll we'll ambush and kill them all. Or 
you know, let's treat them really well. Let's throw a party for them. Maybe they'll wind up being great for us. They'll bring trade goods. This, this could be fantastic. Lewis Clark have no way of knowing what those conversations are. So this greatly in, increases the tension every time. And when we come back, more on the Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever, our 11th feature in this series. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with our 11th featured story on the Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever, and now the final segment of this installment. Here's Sergeant Ordway, the next day. Friday, 28th September. Some of the chiefs were on board, insisting on our staying until the others came. We told them we could not wait any longer. They then did not incline to let us go on. They said we could not go up the Missouri any further. About 200 Indians were then on the bank. Some had firearms, some had spears, and all the rest had bows and steel or iron-pointed arrows. Several of the warriors set by the cord where our boat, the big barge, was tied. Two pirogues were tied on the outside of the barge. Captain Clark was speaking to the chiefs in the cabin. Captain Lewis asked the chiefs if they were going out of the boat. They did not incline to. Then Captain Lewis came out, ordered every man to his place, ordered the sail hoisted. Hoist the sail! One man went out, untied the cord, which the warrior had in his hand. Then two or three more of their warriors caught hold of the cord tied it faster than before. Captain Lewis then appeared to be angry and told to go out of the boat. What makes it so interesting is that it was resolved really by the leadership of the Sioux. So the better of these leaders, a man named Black Buffalo, finally says to Lewis, We are sorry to have you go. If you will give us one carrot of tobacco, we will be willing for you to go on and will not try to stop you. These elite dog soldiers are holding on to this boat, and here's why. Uh, They want tobacco. They want you to give us a gift that will indicate that you get it, that you can't just pass through here without a tariff. You're in Sioux country here. We own this. We're sovereign. We, we control the river. We open and close it at will. You come here with all of your presumption. My elite dog soldiers will save face. We'll be able to work this thing through. We're going to let you go, but you have to give us something. You have to show that you realize that you owe us something for the right of passage through our sovereign territory. And so he says, look, just, just give them some tobacco. And, of course, Lewis and Clark are carrying a very large quantity of tobacco, and they routinely are giving it to friendly Indians. In fact, they sent some of these very people on the first day of their arrival. But Lewis, 
who is a man of deep pride and there's a kind of a martinet in him there's a very stiff military arrogance in him at times and now he feels that he's not just speaking for himself in his own honor but for the dignity and authority of the United States government he says absolutely not you can't make us do anything we're going on how dare you demand tribute we're going I threw a carrot of tobacco to first chief so as to touch his pride took the port fire from the gunner lit the firing paper for the swivel gun and moved toward it Sergeant Ordway picks up with the drama the head chief then said we must give him one more carrot of tobacco for his warriors who held the cord and then we might go both of our captains told them that we did not mean to be trifled with nor would we humor them anymore but we would give him one carrot more for the warriors if he would be a man of his word and stand to his word like a man the chief said he was mad too to see us upset for one carrot of tobacco and with that black buffalo forces his dog soldiers to release the boat and lewis and clark move up river we then set off under a gentle breeze which happened to be favorable they take uh, black buffalo with them as a he wants to see what's going to happen. He's curious about the boat. He wants maybe to uh, heal the rift in some way. So he goes with them for a couple of days until there's a huge ruckus on the boat because they hit a snag and the boat nearly tips over and there are waves crashing over the top of the keel boat. And he gets so frightened of this, the possibility of drowning that he insists upon being put onto shore and says, hey, farewell, have, have a great trip. This prairie diplomat, Black Buffalo, solves the problem because he finds a way to protect the dignity and authority and sovereignty of his tribe, admittedly a, a, a small one, these plugs of tobacco. And Clark either realizes this or at least is intelligent enough to realize that a couple of plugs of tobacco are no big deal. And so while Lewis is raging, in the second of the two encounters, Clark raged in the first one, Lewis rages in the second one. While that's happening, Clark finds a way to meet the tribe halfway, and the expedition is able to move on. So, you know, Lewis and Clark were going to, were going to force their way through. That was their plan. Black Buffalo of the Teton Sioux said, no, that's not how it works. And so he actually provided the diplomatic breakthrough that enabled everyone to save face. And I'm sure that the Sioux were still angry and really upset by this encounter and the arrogance of these bearded strangers, but at least they had managed to make their point. That this was Sioux country and no one was passing through without paying for it. Lewis and Clark didn't understand this. If they understood it, they felt contempt for it because, of course, they were white Americans, part of this extraordinary new Republican form of government. They were sent out by the great father Jefferson himself. They were an official 
advance party of white civilization, and they knew that in Paris, Napoleon Bonaparte had sold this territory to Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson never saw South Dakota. Napoleon certainly never saw South Dakota, but these two white men who never visited this part of the world were buying and selling it without even the slightest interest in consulting the people who actually lived there. So from Lewis and Clark's point of view, who were these savages, these primitive people living in skins, and nomads who had no alphabet, who had no industrial base, who had no historical records, who barely had a central tribal mechanism? Who were these savages pretending to lord it over us as we go on this scientific and military mission on behalf of Thomas Jefferson. And so they were appalled and offended and deeply angered by the behavior of the Sioux. But the Sioux, who were in maybe the most expansive period of their entire history, the most confident, were angry, appalled, and bewildered that this group of bearded strangers appearing out of nowhere were huffing and puffing about their right on the river and there was a new sovereign and all sorts of other nonsense and they weren't going to accept it whatsoever so this is a classical encounter story of mutual bewilderment and, and misunderstanding and not to beat a dead horse if only they had a good interpreter but worst of all these guys might have to have a repeat of this whole episode. Here's Landon Jones. In the back of their mind is the simple fact that they're going to come back down the river two years later and they're going to have to confront these guys again. And a few months later, a still angry Clark would write this of the Teton Sioux. These are the vilest miscreants of the savage race and must ever remain the pirates of the Missouri until such measures are pursued by our government as will make them feel a dependence on its will for their supply of merchandise. And great work as always on those and that comes to us from Alex Cortez who does such great work on this Lewis and Clark series. Again, it's our 11th feature, the most epic road trip ever. And you can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and hear the rest and hear all that we do there. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And my favorite part of this story, that line, a classic story of bewilderment and misunderstanding. These two groups just seeing well, opposite things and... Boy, there's no resolution. And one thing that's in the back of the mind of the core of discovery is they've got to come back again. They've got to see the very same Sue. By the way, if you want to read a great book on Lewis and Clark, Stephen Ambrose's Undaunted Courage may be the very best. Pick it up. You can get it for a few bucks on Amazon. And Clay Jenkinson, that's the voice you're hearing through this entire series. You can find out more about him at claydjenkinson.com. And if you're ever looking for a trip with a family, you know, I'm finding that these experiential trips are so much more interesting than just heading to the beach. You never forget them. And he does tours of the Lewis and Clark Trail. And you can reach Clay at claydjenkinson.com. 
That's ClayJenkinson.com. Look them up. We may be too. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and it's time for our weekly first job segment where we hear from famous and ordinary Americans about their very first work experience what it was what they learned how it helped them get to where they are today and oftentimes funny stories from that very first job and if you have a first job story give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there or leave us your information and we can help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. Our first story is from a Chicago mom we once interviewed named Kathy Hamilton, a mom who fought and defeated the corrupt political machine at her local community college, the College of DuPage. Like we do with every guest, we also asked Kathy about her first job. I actually enjoyed my first job. I know I was a a clerk at a grocery store, and back then, you used to actually have to type in the price of every single item. Mm. And I enjoyed that pace. It was it was fast, it was fun, it was quick. And I became very good at the, the 10, they used to call it the 10 keypad. Mm. So that, that really helped me, because later on in life, I had to do a lot of uh, input number input, inputting of numbers, and, you know, as a, as a financial person and also as an accountant, that became in handy. So that came in handy. That skill, that dexterity was a good thing to develop. And also, you know, I'm a violinist, so I enjoyed working with my hands. It, it really worked well with being a violinist, being an accountant, and using that keypad. It, it taught me a lot. And someone else who started out as a grocery store clerk, Yahoo CEO Marissa Meyer. Marissa once reflected on the experience saying, quote, I was a checkout clerk in the county market in Washaw, Wisconsin, a summer job when I first turned 16. Many of the cashiers had years of experience and were very committed to their jobs. So I saw firsthand the importance of a great work ethic. I learned that speed mattered. They measured our items per minute rate during each shift. And the only way to be Eligible to work on express lane was to do 40 items per minute consistently over an eight-hour shift. Meyer has needed this work ethic from her first job. She now works 130 hours every single week. Well, now on to someone a little bit more famous than Kathy Hamilton. To lighten things up, let's hear from comedian and actor Chris Rock, who didn't like one of his first jobs at all but it taught him what he definitely did not want to do with the rest of his life, 
and gave him the inspiration to do what he does today. Routines like this one. This ain't really work, though. This is not really work. This is my career. It's not really a job. This is my career. You know, some people have jobs. Some people have careers. Some of y'all in the audience. Some of y'all got jobs. Some of you have careers. Now, the people in the audience with careers need to learn to shut the fuck up when you're around people with jobs. They don't want to hear your career bullshit. Keep that to yourself. Okay? Don't let your happiness make somebody sad. Because that's what it does. Nah, nah, man. But I, I used to work. I used to have a job. I used to work at uh, Red Lobster. I used to work at Red Lobster. And on Queens Boulevard. Is a, I was... Um, oh, I served you. Good, good. Uh, no, no. I was a, I was a dishwasher. I used to scrape shrimp in the garbage cans and then load up the dishwasher, man. And that was my real job. I never got a raise. I never got a promotion. They kept me in the back. They kept me back there because I had really f***ed up teeth. And they didn't want people to think that shrimp f***ed up your teeth. And that's what they do at restaurants. They put the ugliest people in the back. So if you don't like the people in the front, you don't want to see the people in the back. <laughs> And that was my real job. I wasn't working my way through school. I wasn't working my way and telling jokes. That was my life. 1989, I was scraping shrimp, okay? And people go, Chris, how'd you end up like that? How the f*** did that happen to you? Minimum wage job? I'll tell you exactly how that happened to me. I dropped out of school in the 10th grade. Dropped out in the 10th grade, which is the dumbest thing you could ever f***ing do. You know why? Because when you drop out in the 10th grade, you really might as well have dropped out in the second grade. <laughs> Why? Because you qualified for the exact same jobs. Matter of fact, the person that dropped out in the second grade is more qualified because they have eight years of work experience. <laughs> yeah, man. I used to scrape those f***ing shrimp, man. To kill me, but I'll tell you this right now. now. Now I have a career. I've been blessed with a career. So if you got a career, thank God. If you got a job, I hope you get a career one day. That's right, because when you got a career, there ain't enough time in the day. There ain't enough time. When you got a career, you look at your watch, time just flies. You're like, God, whoa, it's 5.35. I got to come in early tomorrow and work on my project, because there ain't enough time when you got a career. When you got a job, there's too much time. That's why you look at your watch like, ah, shit, 9.08. <laughs> you don't even trust the time when you got a job. You be like, what time you got? 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 got? 9.15? Whoever got the latest time is the right time. He got the right time. He got the right time. You ever play the time game with yourself at work? You ever play the time game? When you go, I'm not going to look at my watch for two hours. That's right, I'm going to sit here and scrape these shrimp. Scrape, 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 scrape. Okay, hours pass. Maybe I should look. It feel good. Nah, I'm going to wait a whole nother hour. All right, two hours pass. 
time to look and feel good about myself. And you look. 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Chris Rock's take on work versus career. First jobs. It's a segment we love to do every week. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You can catch all of our work on everything at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Every now and then, we like to drop in on some of our favorite TV shows, and Shark Tank is it. We love everything about it. It's celebration of capitalism in the end, and capital, and people pitching each other, and trying to live the American dream, and every kind of American walks through the Shark Tank. Young and old, black and white, it makes no difference. North and south, east and west, and we're all rooting for the people, and sometimes it works out, and boy, sometimes it doesn't. When it doesn't, sometimes it's really funny. This particular episode started with a display that included a whole lot of barbecue sauce and a microwave. Hi, I'm Al Bubba Baker from Avon, Ohio, owner of the D-Bone Baby Back Rib Steaks. I'm seeking $300,000 in exchange for 15% equity in my company. And this is my lovely daughter, Brittany. She's going to make you sharks, ribs, and a microwave in two minutes. Now, I played a little football in the NFL for 13 years. That was my job. Barbecue is my passion. Sadly, I married a woman that doesn't like ribs because they're too messy. So I vowed to find a way for my wife to be able to enjoy ribs. But how do you make ribs less messy? You take the bones out. (laughs) After 20 years, I found the perfect method, and the D-bone baby back rib steaks were born. We are the only people that have removed the bones from an actual slab of ribs, leaving the meat intact so that everyone can enjoy ribs with a knife and fork. Our deboned baby back rib steak is not pieces of meat formed in the shape of a rib. You know what I mean? (laughs) You tell, Bubba. Boneless meats are the way of the future, and the future is now. Make no bones about it, sharks. It's time for some ribs. <laughs> yeah. Always time All for right, ribs. Bubba, bless me with the Bubba baby back. <laughs> Bubba, who'd you play for? Well, I played for the Lions. I was rookie of the year in 1978. I played for the then St. Louis Cardinals. And then I came back and I retired in Cleveland in 1990. That's a long career, man. Great career. And there you have it. That's as good a pitch as you'll hear on Shark Tank. Al, Bubba, Baker, and Brittany. Well, Bubba's daughter then passed out plates of ribs she just heated up in the micro, and the sharks, well, they feasted. This is absolutely delicious. Yeah, it's very this good. This is really, yeah. really good. Thank you, Great. thank you. So basically, I just want to be really, really clear. I buy this, I throw it in the microwave for two minutes. And it tastes like this? You got it. Often when we go to restaurants, cowboy ribeye, bone-in ribeye, 
Some people actually believe that the bone just tastes better. That's a great point. We cook the product with the bone in it, and when the product is fully cooked, then we remove the bones, then we quick chill it, and then it's packed right away. Is there anything proprietary about how you're removing the bone or you're genetically altering cows so they grow up with no bones? Actually, it's pigs. <laughs> Kevin, it's, it's, it's hogs. It's hogs, Kevin. Mr. City Slick, Mr. Wonderful Kevin might just be a little confused about his livestock, but the man has no confusion about how to make money. He zeroed in on the key question. Okay, so why couldn't I just do the same thing? Well, right here, Kevin, is the patent for the product. And right here is the patent for the process. Wow. Can I see the process patent? Here, take them both. So nobody else can make boneless ribs? Let me be more specific. No one else can make a fully cooked rib with either one or more bones removed from it. Wow. And how do you get the bones out? If I tell you that, I gotta kill you. Kill him? No, you don't. You got a patent. You got a patent for it, Bubba. You can tell him. Yeah, tell me. Robert, honestly, there's the patent, then there's the know-how. And what I say to people who are gonna go try and reverse engineer and figure out how to do it, I say, good luck to you, because it took me 20 years to do it. I gotta tell you something, in the entire history of Shark Tank, I've never seen a patent on a food product ever before. Thank you, because we worked it. Well, the sharks were clearly interested. Robert and Barbara Corcoran jumped in with more questions. Al, what are your sales and how many locations are you in? Okay, our sales are $154,000. Over what period? Over a year's period. We're selling in about 48 stores. You said it took you 20 years to develop this, and you've only been in business one year. What happened to those other 19 years? Well, at one point, I'll be honest with you, I, um, I hate to use this word, I quit. And the reason that this young lady and I are partners is we had an incident where she was in track, and uh, like most dads, I was pushing her. She said, hey, I don't want to run track. I said, you cannot quit. And she said, well, you quit on the boneless ribs. Oh, powerful. Yeah. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't still be doing what I'm doing. And what a story. And this is why people love Shark Tank, frankly. I mean, it's not just the products. It's the people. Mr. Wonderful had heard enough. He wanted in. Okay, guys, I actually am an investor in a restaurant chain with 450 locations that sells a ton of protein, and this is their second largest selling item, ribs. Here's a big problem with your deal right now. You're asking for $2 million valuation on this thing. You're not making any money. The only value here is in the patent. This reminds me of a story that's so relevant to you. I love stories. The first season of Shark Tank, a guy stood right where you are, he had a folding neck guitar. He wanted to build out a guitar company. The only thing of value was a patent on the folding neck technology. You know where we are today? Where are you at? They are licensing that technology on fender bender guitars all around the world. He's gonna be rich. Listen to what I'm saying to you. A patent on a food product? That's interesting. And the only value in the patent is to license it to one of the suppliers of protein. I wanna take you to one guy okay. that supplies a, you know what, pigs hate this guy. All around the world, pigs are walking around saying, stop the sense of slaughter because of this one guy. So my offer is very simple. I'll give you the $300,000. It's contingent on getting one of the large meat processors in America to license the patent. But I want 49%. That's the deal. 
And by the way, that's almost always Mr. Wonderful's MO. He's an intellectual property guy. He wants to sell licensing. He doesn't want to manufacture. He doesn't want to do any of that stuff. And by the way, we learn a lot from this show because in the end, who would know if you didn't know that you can just sell an idea and let a manufacturer do it, sit at home and just collect royalties. Not just musicians collect royalties. People of all kinds do. And by the way, people who sit on mineral rights collect royalties. So when you hear, and the next time you hear a story about whether to frack or not in your area, maybe the farmland you're sitting on is sitting on some natural mineral rights, and you can just sell those rights to somebody, and you can take care of your family. Well, that was Kevin's deal, and now the other sharks, they got to weigh in. Damon John saw an opening. That's the first time Kevin actually has a decent idea when it comes to something like this. It's the first time we've heard his stupid idea making any sense. That idea is so brilliant, I'll do the exact same deal, but I'll only take 30%. Bam, Kevin. This greedy savage, his deal is horrible. He's never done a deal like this. If you talk I've to the guy that owns... plenty. Al, let me clear it up for you. Yeah, okay, right. I think you're paying a very expensive price for somebody to make a phone call for you that you could do on your own. I'm out. I would have uh, pitched you that I should bring it to some of the big box stores, some of the club channels like BJ's, Costco. But I happen to think some of the offers on the table are better, so I'm out. But I'm, I'm kind of saying, but I think you need to fatten up the hog some before it's ready to go. For me, the business would have to be a little bit bigger. That's why you're limited kind of to the licensing play. So for those reasons, I'm out. Okay. okay. Al, you've got two offers. Yeah. Both licensing deals. Al, is this the path that you want to go down? Talk to the guys at Voyager and Fender all around the world. I'm the man. And I want you and I to debone this pig together. <laughs> You've got the real deal and you got the discount license guy. Day one, you're not taking a check. And he wants to take 50% of your company. 49. I'm worth every cent of that 49%. What are you going to do? Um, Kevin, I love the fact that you have made us an offer, but I think I'm going to take Damon's ah, deal. You picked the better man, you my son. the pig right in front of me. Thanks a lot. Right deal, Al. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Congrats, guys. <laughs> what a great laugh, and it would have never happened without Brittany, Al Bubba Baker's daughter. Bubba went on with Damon, as we heard, and Bubba's boneless ribs was introduced to the nation. Soon, Bubba and his daughter struck a deal with Carl's Jr. and Hardee's, and by early 2017, their business, which had only taken in $154,000 in sales when appearing on Shark Tank, crossed the $16 million mark in sales. What an American story. A Shark Tank story. Al Bubba Baker and Brittany's story. Here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and this segment belongs to Jesse. We've got two stories from Jesse, or two pieces from Jesse, and the first is one of our favorites here on the show, Shower Thoughts. Shower Thoughts. If fish could scream, an afternoon of fishing would be a lot less relaxing. I have no problem swallowing saliva while it's in my mouth. But once I spit it into a glass, it becomes disgusting to even think about swallowing. Wet towels clean up dry messes, and dry towels clean up wet messes. They should sell Ziploc bags in a Ziploc bag, not a box. I correct autocorrect more than it corrects me. The land of milk and honey... Sounds a lot better than the land of goats and bees. Imagine if men could suffer from preceding hairlines that over time merged with your eyebrows. If a seeing eye dog takes a dump in public, who picks it up? Is the guy who writes the credits at the end of a movie put in the credits? If everything in the universe suddenly doubled in size, we would have no way of knowing. If cannibals were on a strictly human diet, would they be considered humanitarian? Having a high IQ with no people skills is like having a high-powered computer with no internet. When it's a good thing, we nailed it. But when it's a bad thing, we screwed it. Saying the Los Angeles Angels Sounds pretty normal, but changing it to all Spanish or all English, and you would say, Los Los Angeles Angeles, or The The Angels Angels. Why doesn't Spider-Man ever bite anybody? One time I had I'm a Believer stuck in my head, and I kept singing it. My friend told me if I didn't stop, she'd never talk to me again. I didn't believe her, but then I saw her face. What if there are ghost birds all over the place, but we just assume that they're regular birds? Shower thoughts. And thank you for that, Jesse. And this is another story Jesse found us at one of his favorite websites, one of ours too, and that's Reason.com, a great place to find out stories about all kinds of things as it relates to your citizenship, your money, and particularly the nanny state, that is the degree to which the government has just started getting more and more involved in our daily lives, particularly as parents. And so this story came from Zach Weissmuller at Reason. And, well, Mike Tang is refusing to reply with a court order and may face more jail time because of it. What's this story about? Let's take a listen. Mike Tang was charged with child endangerment for leaving his eight-year-old son in this parking lot a mile from home. It was supposed to be a life lesson. The night where I dropped him off, I just wanted to reinforce that money is hard to earn and if he doesn't do a good job at school, he could end up you know, doing something like this or sleeping out here where the homeless people sleep. He dropped him not far from the recycling area and walked away. Sometimes there's a guy there, and you see people on bikes. uh, They look kind of ragged, could be homeless. Mike says his son Isaac had been slacking in school. 
the last straw was when Mike caught Isaac cutting corners on his homework by reading his little sister's book instead of his own. It's an eight-year-old kid who didn't read his book. Right. Why would you do that? Well, first of all, I've tried other things, right, and they didn't work. So that's my take on it, and I'm trying different things. If this doesn't work, I might try something else next time. About 10 to 15 minutes after dropping Isaac, Mike sent Isaac's grandfather to go pick him up. It was 8 o'clock and getting dark. Turns out Isaac had already been picked up. He was in police custody. A stranger had spotted Isaac and called the cops. He said, why was I walking home? And did I know where my home was? And did you? You know how to walk home from the, the park? Yeah, I know how to walk from, from my school to my house. The cops arrested Mike, and he spent the night in county jail. A jury later convicted him, and the judge sentenced him to attend parenting classes and to a 56-day work release program picking up trash. Mike is refusing to serve the sentence, and there's an outstanding warrant for his failure to comply. He scrawled a response on top of the warrant and mailed it back. Walking on a public street, a sidewalk, at 7.45 p.m. is not child endangerment. Is Mike right, or did he jeopardize Isaac's safety? And was it appropriate for the police to intervene? Mike Tang is one of the many American parents who decided to give their kids some independence, in this case as a disciplinary measure, who have their parenting second-guessed by the authorities and find themselves arrested. Journalist Lenore Skenazy is the founder of the Free Range Kids Movement. Walking home a mile on a route that the kid already knew does not rise to the level of danger. It rises to the level of unusual, it rises to the level of perhaps controversial, but it was not literally dangerous. That's not a crime. The state of California says child endangerment occurs when someone willfully causes or permits a child to be placed in a situation where his or her person or health is endangered. Did Mike endanger Isaac? Their hometown of Corona has a remarkably low crime rate, and Isaac knew how to get home and properly use crosswalks. Police and county officials refused to comment for this story, but court transcripts from Mike's trial give us a sense of the arresting officer's thinking. Witness, in my opinion, if I was in your shoes, I wouldn't have left my child there. I have a 20-year-old daughter that I would not let her walk home. If a 20-year-old walking home in a safe town is not safe enough, what is? When we hate the parent for what they're doing, we think they're wrong, we automatically overinflate the danger that we see the kid in. There was a study done at the University of California at Irvine asking people how much danger a kid was in when the parent let the child wait alone in the car. It turns out that the safety of the children wasn't what mattered most to the people surveyed in the study. They were actually passing moral judgment on the parents. So if a mom lets a kid wait in the car because accidentally she was hit by a truck and she was out cold, that's okay. The kid isn't in so much danger. But if she was going to meet her lover and left the kid in the car, oh my God, we think the kid is in way more danger. We are making moral judgments every time we see a kid unsupervised. And the more we hate the parent for leaving the child unsupervised, the more in danger we think the kid is. Maybe this is not the way you would discipline your child. It's not the way I disciplined my kids. 
but he's trying his best. And to treat parenting like a spectator sport, and if you wouldn't have done it that way, and I think that was wrong, nobody thinks that any other parent is raising their kids right. But if you're a cop and you have the power to arrest, and then you're a jury and you have the power to hang, you are giving too much power over an individual's parenting decisions to the state. If I had to do it all over again, you know, I'd do the same thing. Because of his refusal to serve his sentence, Mike faces possible jail time. Uh, if I don't have the freedom to discipline my kid, if they don't even have the freedom to walk outside, I'm already in prison right now. So what does it matter if I go to prison or not? And thanks, Zach Weissmuller, for that piece. And Reason.com is where you can find more like it. And I just know my own life, my dad, my mom made the decision to let me and my five buddies get on our little bicycles in northern New Jersey, go across the George Washington Bridge, go to Harlem, and play basketball. We left at 7 in the morning, and we came back when the sun went down. They'd be in jail right now. I learned my independence. I never got in trouble. And I learned how to play a damn good game of basketball. This is Lee Habib, Mike Tang's story, here on Our American Stories Than Any State. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and all this month, we're honoring Infant Loss Month. And what's that, you ask? Well, it was declared in 1988 by President Ronald Reagan. It honors the lives lost through miscarriage, stillborn birth, sudden infant death syndrome, and other tragedies. And it's personal to us. We all have our own stories and experiences here at the show. Mine, my wife's best friend in Baltimore, our neighbor, suffered not one but two miscarriages. And we heard the news on the second. It was the kind of grief I'd never seen before. And so we know that so many millions of Americans have experienced this that we thought we'd spend some time on it. And we're doing your stories. And the first, Carolyn Hidalgo and her experience with stillborn birth. When the doctor came in, I couldn't even look at the ultrasound. Not only were there too many tears in my eyes, but I think I knew what he was going to say, and I was too scared to see it for myself. He turned to me and said, I'm so sorry, Caroline, but the baby has passed. I'll never forget those words, and I'll never forget how my husband wrapped me in his arms, and I cried harder than I ever have before. I was only nine days from my due date. We decided to induce labor right away to speed things along, and later that night at 11.45 p.m. on June 28, 2010, I gave birth to our firstborn child. He was seven pounds even, 20 inches long, and looked just like his daddy. He had dark brown wavy hair and the cutest little nose. We named him Kale. It wasn't until he was born that we learned that the umbilical cord, which was around his neck, had gotten too tight or compressed that it cut off the blood flow. My guess is it happened after contractions began once I went into early labor. 
We had some time with Kale, and we both held him, kissed him, and told him we loved him. But I wish I held him longer. I don't feel like I did him justice in the short time I held him. I wish I memorized every part of his body, unwrapped his blanket, and just examined his fingers and toes in the perfection that he was. I know forever wouldn't have been long enough, though. He was a beautiful baby, and I wish I could have shared him with the world. We'll love and miss Kale the rest of our lives, but we're thankful for the time that we did have with him. We're thankful that he made his parents, and thankful that we are better able to understand and appreciate love, friendship, family, and all the things that are truly important in life. We know now the pain that is associated with losing a child, stillbirth in particular, and can better reach out to those who will unfortunately go through this same journey. Kale's life, as short as it was, has made us better people. If you're going through this, just know that you're not alone. While stillbirth is rare, it's not nearly as uncommon as people think. Don't be afraid to reach out to others and just know that any emotion you're feeling, be it anger, sadness, fear, or even joy, are totally normal and there's no need to rush through any of your grief. Also know that it comes in stages and it'll sneak up on you. But you're stronger than you think, even when you don't feel like it. If you know someone who is going through this, my biggest advice is to not be afraid to reach out. Don't let the fear of saying the wrong thing prevent you from saying anything. There's nothing wrong with saying I'm sorry or I'm thinking of you. It's words of encouragement and love that will help bring comfort to someone during their darkest days. Don't pretend that nothing happened and don't avoid talking about it. Our babies may have been stillborn, but they were still born. And thank you, Caroline, for that. I love that she said, Kale's life, as short as it was, made us better people. We'll love and miss Kale the rest of our lives. Up next, Carol Bittinger, a teacher. She lost two children to miscarriage. My family jokes about Easter being a rough time for us. I got stitches one year. My dad hurt his arm in another. My brother broke his arm. My sister broke bones around her eye with a softball. I miscarried my second child. Easter may be about resurrection and new life, but in my brain, it is tainted with pain, sorrow, and loss. It's hard to believe it's been one and a half years since I said goodbye to baby number one, and soon it will be baby number two's anniversary. My life has changed in innumerable ways. The miscarriages led to more loss than just these two perfect angels. I lost friends, friends who could understand my sorrow when they were so happy with their own pregnancies and babies. We couldn't find common ground. I couldn't stop the hurt and jealousy I felt watching them, or the sadness of not being part of their club, even though it wasn't my fault. They couldn't understand why I couldn't be happy for them and their growing families. I lost my husband. Our shared dreams were not really shared, as I learned through the second miscarriage, and I realized that I would rather face tough times alone than expect someone to be by my side and then leave when I needed support the most. I changed jobs to avoid my now ex-husband, but also to avoid the room where I miscarried my first baby and the knowing glances of co-workers and the inevitable choosing of sides. I moved out of my house, which became a reminder of broken dreams, a miscarriage, pain. I'm not good with change, and it has been more difficult than I could even imagine to adjust to an entirely new life. I struggle daily with finding peace in this journey I have created, and in failing in the things I wanted most, 
a family with babies and a husband. It doesn't matter that the failure isn't entirely my fault. All I can see is that I don't have what I wanted, and I blame it all on myself. I don't know if I will ever have children on earth. The idea of being pregnant has become a scary, heartbreaking one, and honestly, it terrifies me. The thought of the joy, followed by the pain, physical, emotional, mental, I'm not sure I'm strong enough to handle that again. Part of me wants to be, and part of me wants to just let the dream go and be strong enough in myself to go through life on my own. I have my students, and they are my children. Maybe that's enough. Will I ever know for sure? One thing I am sure of is that I am a mother. I know this in my heart. I think about my babies every day, even if I cannot take care of them in the way I wish. I wear wear rings for their due dates to think of them daily and remind me of the greatest love anyone can know, the love of one's children. I am a mother, an angel mother, and I hope that as I continue on this journey of life, I can make my babies proud as they wait for the day I get to hold them in heaven and finally tell them in person how much I love them and wish I could have held them every day on earth. I am a mother, and no one can take that away from me. I wrote these words in January, and they were published on the website Faces of Loss in February. Though I had shared them with many, I wrote the words to get them out of my head, to help myself heal and process and hopefully help others at the same time. And it has helped. It brought me a community as others shared with me the stories of their own losses. And as friends experienced the pain of their own miscarriages, it allowed them to know they weren't alone and they had someone to turn to. Me. However, now, as I reread my story, I'm struck by just how far I have come in the last seven months since I wrote those sad, angry words. I didn't know at the time how truly depressed I was and had apparently been for a long time. I thought I was just a sad, grieving mother. I wasn't. I could fake it in public, at work, with my friends, even with my family, and cried each night when I was alone. I thought that was somehow normal. I pushed everyone out of my life, blaming them for my unhappiness and pain. It wasn't them. It was me, or rather something inside of me. Looking back now, it's easy to see the change, thanks almost entirely to medication. Depression is real, and I was very depressed, though I didn't know it at the time. I thought my grief was normal and deserved. I'd lost my children and my dreams. Shouldn't I be sad? Wasn't that normal? Yeah, some sadness is normal, but it got extreme. Changing one's whole life is extreme. Pushing everyone away is extreme. Yes, people start over, but what I did, that was running away. I was sad and hurting. I'm thankful every day that my doctor finally recognized it in me and prescribed some medication. I fought him at first, but now I see myself clearer and how I am a different person because of one tiny pill each day, and how much I was hurting and blamed the world for my pain, when really my situation sent me on a downward spiral. I'm glad I've been led out of it to get back to me, a person I want and am happy to be with a brighter future. Both parts of my story are important to who I am. I think about my babies all the time, every single day. I wonder what we would be doing, what they would look like, who their friends would be, what their first words would be, what it would be like to be part of the club of mothers. I miss them in the future we all could have had together. 
but it doesn't send me into the pits of despair anymore. And I know I have two precious angels looking out over me, and I take joy in that. It's amazing how one story can change with a change in perspective. The facts remain, but many of the emotions are different now. I remember feeling all of the things I wrote, but now I see the purpose and the experiences I've been through and the ways my life has been affected for the best. I wouldn't be where I am today without knowing the joy of those two tiny babies growing inside of me, the pain of their loss, and the joy I feel now at being able to live life again with new hope and new direction. I found a new career path, a new home, a new sense of self and strength in my own life. I've reconnected with old friends and made many new amazing friends. Life has even allowed their father and I to reconnect and get a second chance. I've overcome loss and depression. I faced the worst pain in the world and found a way out. I found a new chapter in my life. And I owe it all to my angel babies and the strength of being an angel mother. And thank you so much for that, Carol. And that wasn't a tale of just the loss of two children. It was the tale of two Carols. And for all of you who have suffered from this, we hope this brings at least some added dimension and appreciation of your loss by hearing theirs and the stories of their losses. Thank you both to Caroline and to Carol. Their stories here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 